0: there's lots of kinds of learning you can do, but the kind of learning that I find very, very interesting, and I think is most relevant, it's not the type of stuff you can necessarily Google and find out. The learning is basically bits of ideas that live in different parts of the network inside of people's head. And the only way you learn that is basically through having conversations.
1: Welcome to the Operate Podcast, where we give you a behind
0: the scenes look at company building from the perspective of the builders themselves. This is
1: how we operate. Welcome to the Operate Podcasts. I'm Kerry Ransom. Today's episode is sponsored by BankTech Ventures, the first strategic investment fund designed by the community banking industry for community bank innovation and investment. BankTech identifies leading products and technologies for community banks and works with the founders and management teams to maximize the impact for the banks and their businesses. If you're a bank looking to innovate or you're a founder who wants to work with community banks, reach out to BankTechVentures at BankTechVentures.com. I'm sure we will talk about some bank tech ventures today. I am really excited to have Rex Salisbury with me. Rex has had a really interesting uh, evolution of a career, which we will talk about. He uh, spent some time as an investment banker. He spent some time at a firm that many of you know called Andreessen Horowitz. He developed a very strong fintech community there, decided to go out on his own and build upon that community, which he continues to develop and launched his own fund called Cambrian, which we also will talk about today. And as he uh, just told me, he has 13 investments already in this inaugural fund. Rex, thanks for joining me today.
0: Hey, Kerry. Thanks so much uh, for having me.
1: Absolutely. So let's start. I know you and I were talking about this a little bit. You know, We both probably get questions all the time. How did you get to starting your own venture fund or your own company in this case? Because I feel like you're a little bit of a multi-threaded entity. How did you get to a place where you felt like, hey, it's time for me to go do this myself?
0: Yeah, I feel like all all my big transitions in life starting something have actually been more about deciding to quit. <laughs> mm, <know>. yeah. <laughs> so, so I started off my career doing investment banking at Bank of mm-hmm. America Merrill Lynch. Learned Everybody quits that. Yeah, no, everyone quits <laughs> that. And I learned a lot, but I didn't like it. Yeah. And honestly, the, my biggest mistake was staying too long. I stayed for mm-hmm. about four years, uh, thinking I would find some aspect within the bank. I did a few different uh, roles that I mm-hmm. find something that I really enjoyed uh and i even looked into starting some companies when i was on i was working actually out of charlotte uh north Mm -hmm. carolina which is still the second biggest banking center in the country and i even looked into starting some stuff kind of in financial services there but what i but i never got off the ground and realized what i really needed to do was stop thinking about starting something and just quit my job (laughs) not not even do it not even start something but just literally quit my job to have the space and the commitment to actually do something sure and so the thing that i actually did was move cross country um, I think geography really matters. Um, I think it's incredibly sad that housing is so expensive in the Bay Area because I think the Bay Area is an incredible ecosystem, mm-hmm. and really the only reason it's not, you know, still without question for everyone the best place to come and do something is just because cost of living is is sure. stupid. But for for me, as you know, a single person without children at the time, um, when it was a little bit less expensive, you know, I quit my job, moved cross country to San Francisco, where I think some of the smartest, most interesting people were doing work. Um, in fintech. And so that was the big thing I did is I quit my job at the bank and moved cross country. And then I also learned to code. So I uh, hmm. taught myself, took some online classes, but then also did a coding bootcamp. Um, I'd actually gotten some offers to work in a capacity, a financial capacity at some startups in San Francisco. But I realized, I was like, not only do I not want to do investment banking, like I don't, I don't really want to do finance anymore either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, and I hear technology is the thing. So like, maybe I'll be a technologist. Um, so I learned to code, and then I actually ended up joining Syndio, um, mm-hmm. where I worked under the CTO, Andy Cara, who's one of the co-founders of SoFi, and Syndio is a direct consumer mortgage company. So mm-hmm. I built out a fully automated online mortgage pre-approval, learned a lot, loved the team I worked with. Um, the company was not a success, but I learned a lot about mortgage at the time. And what, was it
1: just too early in your, in your reflection back?
0: There, there are a bunch of different things. We were trying to build an independent brand around mortgage. Mortgage is... To build a mortgage company, you actually have to kind of build five companies. You Mm -hmm. have to build a point of sale. You have to build a sales force. You have to build a brand. You have to build like a workflow and optimization engine. Mm -hmm. You have to build a capital markets engine. Mm -hmm. And so when you're a direct-to-consumer mortgage company, you have to do all of those things all at once before you put any volume through the pipes. And that's just Mm -hmm. really, really hard. So if you look back and you see what really did work at the time, um, blend worked. blend was a Point of sale. And so, what I built at Syndia was basically the back end for a point of sale to directly integrate to Fannie Mae's desktop underwriting mm-hmm. system. So, that was the one piece I built. But unfortunately, we had to do like 10 other things as well. And it turns out that what Blend was doing was software that you could sell to banks that already have all of those other pieces worked mm-hmm. out. And so, yep. that worked out really, really well. So, was super
1: any- instructive? I mean, that like that, yeah. just that learning is so instructive for you as you think about other startups and for founders.
0: No, totally. Well, now, like one of my big learnings that I take forward when I'm looking at companies to invest in is just like, what matters is you have to understand what you have to build in financial services to be successful. You have to understand which parts of the kind of tech stack and product stack value can accrue in ways that are venture backable. Mm -hmm. And then this is really a big insight I always like to think about, which isn't that big of an insight. Uh, In some sense, it's just that distribution really, really matters. And for us as a brand new brand and mortgage, what is the consumer journey by which they choose a mortgage provider? And the reality is 50% of people, their real estate agent tells them who to work mm-hmm. with, and 50% go to their existing bank. And mm-hmm. if you're a net new brand, it's very hard to disintermediate those relationships or flows. Cause even if you have a better product, a cheaper product, a better uh, consumer experience, a priori, no one knows that and no one cares. <laughs> so you yeah. have to figure out distribution. Uh, And so now when I look at companies, I'm all, that's like one of the big things I end up thinking about a lot is just distribution.
1: That's super interesting. And how do you dislodge that if you need to, right? Because if you think about even, I mean, I I haven't looked at the recent data, but you think about somebody like Credit Karma that has been incredibly effective in helping people get distribution to financial products. We've, We've used it in some of my prior companies, but I don't know that they've been all that effective in mortgage as an example.
0: Yeah, mortgage is hard. And yeah, that's a great point. If you look at Credit Karma's business, I don't have specific numbers now, you could probably go and pull them out if you're really creative from Intuit's uh, 10k or 10q. Um, But yeah, it's still mostly about cards. Uh, Mm -hmm. And mortgage has been really hard. At the time we were building Syndio and mortgage, Google killed their mortgage product for the second time. So like, all that is to say, like, mortgage has been really hard to, to yeah. disintermediate.
1: And if they, they couldn't you, do it, yeah, you kind of go, and if they couldn't do it, then yeah, getting new distribution yeah. is not easy.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and so, yeah, dis- distribution and financial services really matters. But yeah, that going back to credit karma, like sometimes how you get distribution can be really surprising. It might work at one point in time in the ecosystem, mm-hmm. but then not in another. So I, I interviewed... Ken Lin on, I have a YouTube channel mm-hmm. at some point I'll probably repackage that and also do it as a podcast. But when Ken started Credit Karma was getting, you know, free credit scores, mm-hmm. but for a long time, it's just very hard for them to acquire consumers. Cause they're making a few dollars per consumer per year, which meant they just mm-hmm. couldn't spend very much on marketing. And they ran this accidental experiment, which was an ad with some leftover ad inventory and like one geo in middle America. And that ad that they made for like $30 ended up churning over like a whole bunch of new applicants to Credit Karma. And that was like just an experiment that they ran. And then all of a sudden, so they started off basically not knowing how to really scale distribution, had this one thing that worked out and they had spent like, you know, a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars putting this thing together. And then within a year they scaled it and were doing ad campaigns nationally, spending like tens of millions and raised their series B and were incredibly successful. But it took them almost five years, mm. something like that, to get to the point where they really figured out what their distribution thing was. And it was um, it was TV advertising. I would not encourage most uh, FinTech yeah. founders to rely on <laughs> like not viral, but incredibly effective um, televised mm-hmm. advertising mm-hmm. as your like key insight into distribution. But that was something that really, really worked for Credit Karma.
1: Yeah, it's super interesting. And yeah, as one of my friends calls it, 64 bad ideas. Um, you start with 65 on the board. And as long as one of them works, it's okay to have 64 <laughs> backwards. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. okay. So, yeah. So, on from Cyndio, And then.
0: Oh, yeah. And then the kind of what led me into venture. So, back to the thing like, how do you mm-hmm. start things? Maybe it's by quitting other things. I, one thing I did do when at Cyndio was I started a community for mm-hmm. people like myself, software mm-hmm. engineers, product managers, or just early stage founders in FinTech. To talk about things that are building in downtown san francisco it's always in-person events Um, the original name for that community was fintech devs and pms which is Mm -hmm. unwieldy but descriptive Uh, and i rebranded many years later that to cambrian so this Mm -hmm. is kind of the genesis of cambrian the community Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and for example the kind of conversations we would have our very first event was my team demoing our mortgage pre-approval flow the plaid team demoing their api and another founder demoing Penny, which is a chat app that was later acquired by Credit Karma, that mm-hmm. was built on top of um, built on top of Flat. And actually, if you log into your Credit Karma app and ask questions about the score, you'll still see Penny Penny there now. Mm-hmm. And so, from that kind of core idea of talking to interesting people in fintech about interesting things they're building, came in the community just grew over time. Now, uh, this is a rat, like a little after 2014. If you look at like Google Trends and mm-hmm. or the word fintech, you'll see. The term fintech goes from not being a term to like being a term mm-hmm. and so it was just a great time to start bringing people together and got to the point where i was running monthly events in san francisco and in new york was doing two annual summits was doing quarterly jobs fairs was doing biannual co-founder matching i basically realized i was much more effective as an ecosystem level person mm-hmm. than i was as you know an individual company person and it was where i was getting more energy mm-hmm. um, and so i then quit my job as a software engineer i went full-time on Cambridge in the community with a plan to raise a small fund. And actually, Andreessen Horowitz had reached out to me mm-hmm. right after I quit and said, Hey, why don't you, instead of like doing this, join us, help start our FinTech vertical. Yep. And then if you're still excited, you know, maybe you can start something down the road. And so that's what I did is I basically went there, had a great two year experience focused primarily uh, on investing, investing in great companies like deal and tally um, mm-hmm. as well as some other ones. Uh, but really what I love is the, the very earliest stage of company formation, the pre-seed and the seed, which is where I'm focused now. And I love now that I'm not inside of a firm that's multi-stage and a lead firm, it really allows me to leverage my networks in ways mm-hmm. that I think are more beneficial um, to the founders because mm-hmm. I can help facilitate introductions to other investors who might lead subsequent rounds. Um, I can you know, have 20 plus founders who are LPs in my fund who can actually provide co-investment, sure. but also episodic or even continued Kind of advice to the founders I back, and then I can just be this kind of connective tissue between between lots of other folks. So um, yep. so anyways, I spun out there. I quit my job at a sixteen Z and started started something new,
1: yeah, great. Thank you for taking me on that journey um and and obviously doing it in, in this recording because I think there's so much instructive in there. I mean, as an example, this community that you just had to keep facilitating and building around you were doing it at the right time that's that's a way for a lot of people to build value in a world of of change that's happening that they're passionate about like you were and ultimately land an opportunity with one of the biggest if not the biggest name uh, in venture on the planet right so uh, i think that that in and of itself is is a great instructive story for people to to understand or, or you look at others who started podcasts that, um, are the right topic at the right time. And and they build around that or whether it's their brand or, uh, community. So super cool.
0: No, t- totally. And, yeah, and there are lots of different ways to do it, but I, I feel just fortunate that I was in San Francisco, I, you know, I feel like the right time for this yeah. kind of stuff. Um, yeah,
1: so, well, give me your thoughts on this. I mean, if you look right now, you've got, I think the number one job that younger folks, aspire to have is something around the term creator influencer or something like that so how do you think about that as companies move forward i mean most of these people aren't going to make a living doing this so they may still want to exercise that but how do you think about that from a from a company that needs to also have a group of people who maybe are are also interested in building their own voice and brand
0: yeah, I, I think the number one job that young people want is to be a TikToker or a YouTuber, yeah. which I guess I technically am a YouTuber in that I have a very small <laughs> YouTube channel. But when I was- You're Gen college, Z,
1: man. Good, good work. Yeah, yeah.
0: It took me at least a few years after graduating college to really understand what a venture capitalist was. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: um,
0: and now I happen to be one. Uh, and some of the ways in which I've done that have been through building my own community audience networks. Mm-hmm. Uh, Etc. And so there is definitely some kind of creator-esque elements to mm-hmm. to how you I think navigate the the tech ecosystem because at the end of the day it's just a lot of a lot of networks or some of mm-hmm. especially at the earliest stage like at the earliest stage a company doesn't exist a company is a potential set of relationships between mm-hmm. individuals and if you're able to help facilitate. Those potential connection points. And that's what I like to do is try and Uh facilitate potential connection points between founders. For example, like I do co-founder matching twice a year, just Uh kicked off our first half, our one for the first half of 2023 had over 200 participants. So it's about, you know, making these potential connections between people to start something or once they do come together, you know, facilitating intros to customers, intros to infrastructure partners, Intros to upstream, um, you know, future investment partners to to talent, all that sort of stuff. Um, and so, I I like doing that. It's something that keeps keeps me very busy for sure.
1: <laughs> sure, no, it's it's great, yeah. And I think that that learned experience, you know, I I use the word tuition a lot. And you know, you can pay tuition with dollars. You know, doing some early investing is one way to learn. Sometimes good, sometimes bad, you can pay tuition with time. And I'm sure part of how you learned so much of this was the time that you put in to a startup, to this community building that you did.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I I like it's a great, it's a different kind. Like there's lots of kinds of learning you can do, Mm -hmm. but the kind of learning that can be most, I find like very, very interesting. I think it's most relevant for like, pre-seed and seed, it's not the type of stuff you can necessarily Google and find out because the market hasn't been defined, the product product hasn't been defined, the problem maybe even hasn't been defined. And so the learning is basically bits of ideas that live in different parts of the network inside of people's head, people's head. And the only way you learn that is basically through having conversations. Mm -hmm. And if there is some way to actually Google it and find it out, that's probably not the right area to be looking to do free Cedar seed, seed. That's not entirely true because I sure. i also have a very rich information diet, read a lot of things from mm-hmm. different sources, mm-hmm. but there is this kind of indispensable component, which is basically getting information and sharing information between nodes in the in the network that um, makes the having relationships very interesting just from a, an academic perspective in terms of
1: understanding what might be built in the future. Yeah, I I I think that, yeah, looking at information in both sort of horizontal horizontal and vertical ways uh, and synthesizing across that's probably where you end up finding a lot of interesting opportunities as a founder, as an investor. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, the, yeah. Although
0: investing is also a long-term game, so I'll, tell, right. you. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you in another right. 10 years whether
1: or not. I, I think not enough people actually, I mean, it's, you know, there are others that have, have said this, but it, it's a long feedback loop as especially an early stage investor, um, you know, many, many of whom you don't really get a good signal for a long time. So even just to be willing to live with that fact, yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize.
0: No, totally. I think the, the hardest thing I to sit with before I decided to launch Cambrian, the, the fund was it's a really long time commitment. So mm-hmm. when you, and maybe some people probably understand this, but maybe a lot of people don't necessarily understand that When you're raising a venture fund, it's a 10-year vehicle, mm-hmm. generally, but really what you're committing to a lot of your LPs is they want you to be successful. And then by backing you early, before you have a track record, they want you to raise successive funds. Right. And so really you're kind of committing to raise three or more funds. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you're really kind of making like a 15 year plus commitment. Um, And that's like a pretty big, like, even if you're a founder, you know, oftentimes even where private market, you know, durations, but, or IPO have dragged out. It's still, you know, eight, 10 years, whereas sort of venture firm is a pretty long time commitment.
1: Absolutely. Let's shift a little bit to just state of FinTech. Um, you and I are both firmly implanted in, in parts of this world. I mean, the, you know, 2020, 2021 numbers were at, you know, crazy all time levels, you know, we've come back to earth, I suppose is maybe the best way Um there, there's some that you know feel like, oh, you know, fintech is out of favor now. I know you, you are a long-term optimist. Your your Cambrian uh, name, uh, you know, is is key to how you think about, <laughs> um, you know, where where we're headed. But you know, how do you think about it? As uh, I'd say, both a, as an early investor and even as someone who uh, might be thinking about founding a company in this area, and how you you would encourage them to think about it.
0: Yeah, totally. So I, yes, I'm an optimist. I'm still more excited about fintech um, than ever before. Um, And especially at the earliest stage. So first to kind of at least clarify when people say, Oh, like fintech has fallen apart. Like let's break down the ecosystem Mm -hmm. a little bit. So if you start at a series B round or later, or you're looking, let's start maybe with just the public markets, public markets valuations have come down about 80% or so from their peak.
1: Um, Although nice start to the year.
0: Yeah, although the, the, the new year is, is off to a good start. Um, and then it's been really hard for people who raised high valuations in the private market series B and later mm-hmm. to go out and raise new rounds. So that's true. When you hear people talking about, oh, like there's all this pain in the ecosystem, that's true. But then there's this other part of the ecosystem, which is like the pre-seed and the seed, basically net new companies who are getting started today. And they're actually in a great position, mm-hmm. right? Because And there are a couple reasons why that's the case. One is... First of all there's just more talented people than there ever were before mm-hmm. who understand both technology and finance
1: that's right, right? last so decade like, has definitely helped there yes
0: totally like how many how many technologists understood like knew what the word interchange meant mm-hmm. <laughs> 10 years ago and the answer is probably like well there were lots of them right and because actually banks have been the largest sure. employers of software engineers and so i don't want to downplay that to some mm-hmm. extent but they weren't necessarily mm-hmm. connected to like the venture capital ecosystem sure. and the whole like business creation ecosystem mm-hmm. so like kind of the venture capital connected technologists who understood what the word interchange meant or maybe even better the number of venture capitalists who knew what the word interchange sure. meant it was pretty close to zero ten years ago now there's like all these people and that's just like one concept mm-hmm. that's fundamental to one set of business models which in financial services now there are a lot of venture capitalists, a lot of technologists who actually understand the whole ecosystem. And a lot of people who have grown up inside of, you know, a Stripe or a Credit Karma. There's something like, depending on how you want to cut it, 200,000 to 30,000 employees at like the top 250 FinTech companies globally. So there's just mm-hmm. really great talent. And then the other side of the equation is like, well, what about the market opportunity? And if you look at digital penetration and financial services, it's still basically big old digit percentages. And so it's like, oh, the market opportunity is basically as big as it's ever been before. Mm -hmm. And then there's a third thing, like what kind of tools do those people have to be able to build businesses? And there's a lot better infrastructure out there to go out and launch stuff. And that can just be very general tech infrastructure, like AWS and Google Cloud. But it can also be very specific financial services infrastructure, like banking as a service provider, right? There are now a whole bunch of them and a whole bunch of ones who specialize in different Parts of the stack. And so you've basically got more smarter people um, in a market that's as big as ever with better tools. It like, seems to me like now is a pretty good time. Yes. And then from the venture capital side of things, there's actually record amounts of dry powder in the venture mm-hmm. capital ecosystem in part because of the pain later stage people are holding off deploying. But if you're in that new company, you don't have that overhang of like an unreasonable prior valuation. You're a new company. And so new companies today are raising up valuations. And at similar rates, there's a similar number of new companies being formed in fintech as there were in like 2019. Mm -hmm. And guess what? 2019 was like the valuations were fine. That was a a good year. (laughs) The number of companies being formed was fine. So all that is to say at the earliest stages, there's still a ton of opportunity um, in in fintech. And I think in a lot of other categories of of venture as well.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I think you raised an interesting point. I don't know if I've ever told you this, you know, in uh, one of my prior fintech businesses, you know, we built uh, a system that v- looked very similar to alloy. And yeah. we spent a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of effort because alloy did not exist. And at a point, yeah, I so this, said, this was internal tooling as opposed yes, to exactly. tooling that you were selling. Yeah. yeah. Internal tooling, just to support our business. We had to do this, right? We had to, We had to do identity and bank account and income verification and we had to build it. And at a point I said, this can probably be a business on its own, but we were so busy <laughs> doing our business that we didn't think about that. And then you know, yeah. I moved to the next fintech and we have to do it again. And I go, I don't want to have to build this again. And lo and behold, alloys out there, right? And so I just think yep. there's been so much movement in the last decade to that the starting part for a lot of these. But with that said, I think, and you know, this is where I'd love to sort of go next is you know, starting on top of these easy to start infrastructures should also, in some cases, my perspective would be should give some founders pause that if it's too easy to start it, then you should just assume that there's going to be a ton of competition and you may not have a lot of defensibility. So that realization, which I'm sure you have, how is that influencing how you think about the kinds of companies that you think people should be starting or that you want to invest in?
0: Yeah, I, I do agree. When you have easier infrastructure and you lower barriers to access, you basically unlock the ability for a lot of people to do fairly similar kinds of things. And so mm-hmm. one way is like, I just see a lot of this going on in the ecosystem. And so if I hear like five people with the same idea, it's probably going to be hard. Um, even if it is, you know, a real problem in the ecosystem, it's probably going to be very hard to build a big standalone business. Mm-hmm. I really like just backing people that have deep domain expertise that are doing things and kind of less traversed parts of you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the financial services ecosystem uh, who understand like bits of the plumbing and how it's broken. And oftentimes when I talk to those individuals, they teach me something very new that I haven't thought about before mm-hmm. and that I haven't heard anyone else talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so oftentimes at the pre-CNC, again, that's what I said earlier about like, what I'm trying to do is find bits of information that live within the network that aren't like codified anywhere. Mm-hmm. I want to try and find those kinds of people who have those things in their head that are super interesting and powerful, but aren't necessarily like you know
1: dispersed throughout the whole network yet. Oh, that's there's such a gold nugget in what you just said that I think founders. I'm just going to call it out because I don't think nearly enough founders recognize that if they teach us something, that we'd be, we're we're going to have a conversation with them because we're we're interested in reasonably well read in fintech and if they teach us something that is not the norm but that usually causes at least with me usually causes me to lean in a little bit
0: no totally and it's also a two-way street because you know someone teaches you something and then you can usually Mm -hmm. think oh now that i know this new thing how can i apply to this to this other problem that might exist for other people oh by the way now that you've taught me this thing here are two or three people who might be your first customers. That's right. Here are two or three people who probably dealt with this problem at a prior company mm-hmm. and might be interested in joining you to help build this thing or to be a co-founder. And so you're able to help facilitate. Uh, and so it's not just a one-way exchange, right? It's a, a mutual exchange that's that's mutually beneficial.
1: Yeah, I totally yeah totally agree. How are you thinking about the change in the types of Businesses now. I mean, we were talking a little bit that there, you know, a lot of the early fintech businesses were consumer oriented. Um, as I've looked back, I've thought part of why is that it was reasonably easy and inexpensive for a while to access consumers. You really could just build a decent digital experience, and that was enough. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, there was really not much product innovation. It was, a better application, a better mobile app. It was just wasn't that hard. The iPhone existed. That's right.
0: Facebook and so like advertising on social networks wasn't overly penetrated. Mm -hmm. And then I think the other thing is the idea space, right? Technologists weren't necessarily super deep in how the financial services ecosystem worked, but they could understand as a consumer of -hmm. financial services, things that were broken about the experience. And so the idea of starting a better investment experience, of having a better understanding of your credit score, of being able to like trade stocks for Mm -hmm. zero dollars, like those were things you could understand as someone who maybe was still in college. That's right, right.
1: that's right.
0: Um, And then you had these other kind of platforms that you could ride along. But now that we're 10 years later, Mm -hmm. the iPhone's been around for 10 years. Facebook has been around for 10 years. And those same ideas and insights that worked
1: originally, now you're going to have to find find newer stuff. That's right. So, okay, that's where we came from. So now where are we going in, in your mind?
0: Yeah, and I, I spent a lot of time just in B2B. And I thought that mm-hmm. I'm against B2C. In fact, I would love if people have kind of interesting new direct-to-consumer businesses. Mm-hmm. I would love to be pitched them. Um, but I think what we talked about earlier is, you know, a lot of people maybe help scale, um, you know, uh, a credit karma or, um, a Robin hood or one of these other like large consumer companies, and they realized ways in which the plumbing were broken. And then they went out and tried to fix some aspect of that mm-hmm. plumbing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's just a great thing is basically people have like deep expertise in certain areas. And then I think another thing that people are doing too, is just kind of translational learning, taking things they've learned in how you monetize and provide financial services and then embed them into other experiences to create kind of new fintech powered business models. So one of the big new categories of business that all these better building blocks have unlocked is the rise of vertical software, mm-hmm. right? So like mm-hmm. tailored solutions that are kind of the core operating system for a specific type of business. Maybe it's dentist, maybe it's yoga studios, maybe it's a small scale manufacturer, maybe it's government contractors. They have similar workflows, similar needs, but if you're trying to build a perfect built software solution that's only charging, you know, a monthly fee, you can only make so much money if instead you're doing payment processing, lending, payroll, bookkeeping, insurance, all this other stuff, all of a sudden, instead of earning maybe $2,000 per company on your platform, you could maybe earn 10, 20, 30. And so that's kind of a market creating mechanism Mm -hmm. by being able to embed financial services. So I've done a lot of investing in vertical SaaS companies, um, but also in you know, embedded fintech companies, which I yeah. kind of like calling is a little less, uh, it's a little more cumbersome, but I, I think it's a little more descriptive. It's like meta vertical SaaS companies, which mm-hmm. is basically the horizontal enablement layer that allows vertical SaaS companies to embed financial services. So I've done investment in an embedded payroll company, an embedded lending company, an embedded consumer wallets company as just like a few examples of people are helping provide the building blocks for mm-hmm. vertical SaaS. So vertical SaaS um and embedded fintech are two definitely of the the biggest areas. Um uh, but then there are also people who have are doing things just in kind of the, the even slower to adopt technology parts of financial services, like insurance mm-hmm. or commercial real estate and some of that other stuff that um, you know the, the problems there are not at all obvious to outsiders. But once you get in them, you're like, wow, these are some really big markets. Uh, and some of the basic tech, like maybe the tech that I built for blend, like that tech could be applied in some way. In commercial real estate, but adapted for commercial real estate in ways that actually make it much more exciting. <laughs> um, and I've done like one investment, for example, in commercial real estate for, for mm-hmm. lending that I think is really really interesting. So, all sorts of different opportunities still abound, abound in the ecosystem. But for me, that's mostly been today B two B companies.
1: Very very interesting. Well, I know we've we've talked you know previously about you know construction equipment or commercial equipment. Lending, which I was just astounded to find, it's a a trillion dollar a year. The financing part of it is a trillion dollar a year commercial market in the the yeah. U.S. And you go, that is just ripe for some amount of innovation and and no, totally. And I have, I have
0: a investment in that space that I'm very excited about, and can talk more about later on. And um, I think even completely redefines how you think about equipment financing, which is pretty mm-hmm. interesting.
1: Yep. Yeah, like equipment as a service, sort of. Yeah. Uh, things are are super interesting. Are you of the belief that, you know, as, as some people say, every business is now a software business, would you say every business is also a fintech business increasingly?
0: I, I mean, that's been said, I think to some extent ad, ad nauseum. And it is true. It is true to an extent. I mean, there. I think there is a lot of opportunity for people to think about embedding certain kinds of financial services into what they're doing. But it's certainly not all businesses, but a lot more than there used to be.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and that's pretty exciting and interesting. Um, but, you know, I also, even the FinTech businesses I, I invest in, sometimes, you know, they really are just SaaS companies that happen to be serving financial services sure. industries. The thing about that is oftentimes those kind of pure SaaS companies, they might have not have the largest gross revenue potential, but they can have incredibly great margins and cash efficient growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's also a trade-off in terms of how you think about sizing a market opportunity. It's not just about the amount of revenue. It's also about the quality of, of revenue. And this is actually why I think a lot of businesses that maybe should be monetizing through financial services, you want to have a party who embeds the lending so that they basically just do a revenue share with you. And now Mm -hmm. that's 100% gross margin additive and it doesn't confuse your existing investors. Whereas if you built that lending stack in-house, now you have to hire a product team, an engineering team. You have to um, have a capital markets team that's going to raise credit facilities and your investors are going to look at your top line revenue and be like, is that, (laughs) is there like, you know, loan losses tied in there if they're not, right? So, you know, I mean, what kind investor, of
1: business is that? What, what kind of business are you really in?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so if you want to go out and be like, I'm a software business that want, that's operating at 80% gross margin, sure, I might have lending embedded, but I'm taking zero risk from that. So I'm an investor mm-hmm. in a company called 0 that does embedded lending. Mm-hmm. They'll do revenue sharing with some of their partners. So if you use someone like that, you don't need as many engineers, as many product managers, a capital markets team. And when you go to your investors and you show them your gross margin, there's not a question of like, wait, what about like the loan losses and reserves and all of that? And you can very purely just stay in the, you know, kind of SaaS multiple world.
1: Great example. Okay. A couple couple sort of rapid fire as we're wrapping this up. What's your current view of the future for I'll call it the traditional financial institutions? I, I spend a lot of time with smaller banks. Um, how, how do you think about them as a part of this 10 years from now?
0: Yeah, I think for smaller financial institutions, like financial services does change very, very quickly. So like the death of banks in the past 10 years has been very much exaggerated. Um, and then I also think there's this new era of coopetition mm-hmm. between banks and fintech where a lot of bank or a lot of fintech companies have realized, oh, there are these problems that banks have. We can help them solve them. And banks already have some degree of distribution network connectivity that can be unique to them. And I think one lesson banks could potentially draw from that is or conclusion they would maybe draw is, oh, now I can relax. Like now the fintechs are are supporting me. But the reality is that's dangerous because the big competition for banks has always been and for a while will remain other banks, Mm -hmm. especially the big five banks. Mm -hmm. And so the big thing is you're still going to have to think very intentionally about who are your customers and why should they choose you over other people? And that can't just be geography, Mm -hmm. right? Um, It has to be other stuff. And so that's going to be one of the big questions is even though there is more competition between fintech and um, regional banks, it's still going to be a big question of how do you really, really fight the big five banks. Um, And that is one area that's kind of nice is partner with fintechs, you can probably get As good, potentially better solutions sooner than can the really big people. For example, Goldman made a huge push into consumer banking. Mm -hmm. Marcus greatly exceeded their forecast for deposit growth, but it's still just been cost them a ton of money. So they basically have shut down their consumer product, their card product. I think last quarter triggered like a billion or two of credit losses. Mm -hmm. And so it can just be really hard for big banks, even ones that don't have legacy stacks, to innovate. And so extent you can lean into partnering with best-in-class fintech solutions you you should definitely do that but by no means should you be relaxing (laughs) (laughs) even though even though the kind of you know original proclamations of like banks are dead 10 years ago were definitely um definitely too soon
1: well and in some cases it's it's all about the niche right it's like you or i would take a billion dollar business but that may not move the needle and warrant even investing in it for someone that, relatively speaking, that's not substantial. Yeah. Yep. Totally. Totally. Okay. So, next one what's your current thought on DeFi?
0: Um, so, I and DeFi and crypto generally, I don't, I do investments in like connective tissue between mm-hmm. things, between traditional financial services uh, and the crypto ecosystem. Uh, And to be transparent, I actually haven't done any investments in that category out of this fund yet, Mm -hmm. because early in 2022, those companies that were interesting with great teams, it was so frothy that they would be raising at 3, 4x the price of a really great founder working on a very real problem that I could understand. And -hmm. then crypto winter happened. And so now it's kind of the opposite problem where there just aren't as many uh, interesting teams. And so I like things that are kind of connective tissue between the two ecosystems. And Mm -hmm. I do think there are some very real opportunities. Mm -hmm. One thing I'm currently thinking about though, is where the true consumer pain points or business pain points that solves, whether they're going to be things in the U S or more abroad. If you Mm -hmm. look at the biggest, one of the biggest outcomes in FinTech generally has been new bank, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, a super app slash neobank based out of Brazil in a greenfield market where there there just were no good existing solutions and you could wrap in lots of other things. If you look at where crypto has been most adopted by consumers, I believe Vietnam has the highest rate of like intra-consumer payments Hmm. in crypto. If you go back into the US, it's a big unified market where like, yes, some people are underserved and underbanked and that's a problem and should be addressed. And yes, there can be businesses built addressing that. But generally speaking, you get to the bank's most profitable customers, mass affluent, and they're relatively well served. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a lot harder for things like crypto to come in and displace things. Also, the U.S. dollar is very stable compared to other currencies internationally. Mm -hmm. And so um, some of the things around like where crypto will be really interesting, it could be an interesting global phenomenon, but still not necessarily be interesting in some ways within the U.S. context. Uh, and so I'm still would love to do stuff that's connecting the two. I just haven't found the right thing, given some of the timing things right now.
1: Yeah. Oh, uh, great, great insight. And I, I think generally I, I agree. Is this? It's I mean some of the connectivity is also helping with some of the transition where there is real problems that are solved better yeah. by by a blockchain or or yeah. decentralized. Uh, and, and the type of so stuff we'll that see. I
0: love is like the most boring aspect yep. of crypto. So, TRM Labs chain analysis. They mm-hmm. do AML software sold to banks, governments, mm-hmm. public institutions, and corporates to monitor transactions mm-hmm. on the blockchain. So it's not, it's crypto data, but it's really just an enterprise SaaS company
1: sure.
0: selling to banks, right? And to some people would be like, oh, in the crypto world, they're like, oh, that's not like real crypto. It's they're like, yeah, but this is like a real problem. Mm-hmm. Anyone in banking understands immediately why. Why you need that? Anyone in government understands immediately why you need that, and so that's the kind of stuff that where I understand that go to market the problem and like the reason why you need a solution where I I would be interested.
1: Makes total sense. Okay, last one, economy, right? We we were talking about this a little bit. There, we feel like there's such conflicting signals in the economy, or at least I do. Um, we see layoffs and increasing layoffs in the tech world, and yet you know a lot of data is showing there are plenty of jobs out there for people who want them um and you know other signals how how are you thinking about the economy in 2023 maybe even into 2024
0: yeah so for, first of all i'm not a macroeconomist yep. i'll make no yep. no but it's like it influences about... how
1: you think about your yeah. decisions so i i, just, I will yeah.
0: i will talk about the one aspect that i feel like sure. i can speak to um which is and yes there are a bunch of conflicting signals. Also COVID has been so confusing because the the pendulum swings one way and then it swings the other way. And then you're like, is the pendulum still swinging or is the pendulum like resettled? So one example, the Metro with the largest outflows at the midway into the pandemic, San Francisco, right? Mm -hmm. The Metro with the second biggest inflows in the last quarter, according to LinkedIn data. So this is more for white collar jobs, San Francisco. Exactly. The pendulum has come back. Now, is that going to still be the case? I don't yeah. know, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like,
1: and is we'll, it we'll just see. people changing their their LinkedIn data or is it really, yeah. did
0: they leave? Did they come back, like, you know,
1: it's 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 fascinating.
0: Yeah, but, but the thing I can speak to is like, I have a lot of founders who are at the pre-seed and seed stage. And one of the big ingredients they need to be successful is talent, right? So we've already mm-hmm. talked about how it's actually still a fine time to raise. It's just kind of mm-hmm. 2019 levels. But if you're raising in 2019, the other big ingredient you need for your business outside of capital is talent. Mm-hmm. And let's, let's especially talk like 2020 or 2021. If you wanna hire, you're competing against Facebook, Apple, Amazon, and you're competing against late stage tech companies who are watching their paper valuation of their equity three X every six months. Mm-hmm. And so like, good luck. That's right. <laughs> good luck trying to offer them enough cash or enough equity to get them to leave their job today. Facebook had their first ever like negative earnings growth, I think like in 2022, but basically you know, Amazon, Facebook, mm-hmm. Google, they're all doing layoffs. Salesforce, late-stage tech companies are all doing layoffs. And so you have a much better competitive position to go, go out and recruit talent. You can also even poach because if you're at a company that's done layoffs, you're like, man, I don't feel as excited about this company. Also, my... Paper equity is down 80%. Down. It's going to yes, take right. three years of like really strong growth to kind of hit the last round's watermark. And my 409A and option strike price was that based off of that maybe. And so not only is it a less competitive like uh, environment for people who are looking for jobs, you'll probably go out and poach people. Yeah. So like the, the one thing I can say is that if you're a pre-seed or seed stage founder right now, it's been a better market to be hiring than it ever has been before. Which, which is net a good thing for companies at this stage. Awesome. Another, I will say one thing that's kind of crazy on a macroeconomic standpoint is um, if you go to Fred, so like the St. Louis Federal Reserve's mm-hmm. uh, data set, you can see like the new business applications and uh, formation, and it's crazy. You see this huge spike after COVID, which isn't that mm-hmm. ex- uh, crazy because often during times of economic distress, people get laid off and they have mm-hmm. no choice that's right. but to start something. But what's been crazy to me is seeing how durable that spike has been. And it actually Mm -hmm. continues. And I would actually love for someone to more (laughs) informed on this stuff than I to like dig into like what exactly that is, because I think it's, you know, it's the tune of several hundred, not several hundred thousand, but like many tens of thousands of businesses being formed Mm -hmm. a month, which most businesses are not tech businesses. They're like, you know, the engine of growth is small businesses in this country. And so that's why you can both see, Layoffs at all of the big companies. but then see, I think last month it was five hundred thousand jobs added. It was the most since like July or something like that. You can still see unemployment rate going down. Mm-hmm. And it's because there's something happening that's interesting for all small businesses in the country. But it's really hard to tell what exactly that is because there's so many of them. they're so different. and so anyways, that's just that's another a- interesting trend.
1: Yeah. And it's it's one, I mean, I'm particularly fascinated by it. I've had uh, a guy out of DC named John Deary, who started the Center for American Entrepreneurship. And he started the first ever uh, caucuses in both houses of Congress about entrepreneurship that had never yeah. existed until just a few years ago. And partly because there was a 50 year decline in new business formations, which to your point, the fabric of this country has been small business. And so um it's it's interesting to see because we talked about it in the early days of covid and to your point most of that was formation by necessity and the fact that it's held up it'll be really interesting to see what that starts to look like as uh new new businesses emerge all over the place so i'm, I'm excited about it I, I hope there's a new renaissance uh occurring
0: yeah yeah, I just pulled up the, the numbers here just because I was curious. And basically between 2005 and like 2018, the average number of um, business applications is like sub 250,000. And then it spikes to, to up over 400,000 and stays over there and basically has since the pandemic. So nearly like just 2x mm-hmm. growth over the course of several years. And so I'm super curious to see, will that continue? What, what are these businesses looking like? And at those numbers like hundreds of thousands like that's right most entrepreneurship is not tech entrepreneurship that's right well most um, of them are
1: probably just single person tiktokers <laughs> that's right they're all, <laughs> they're all youtubers <laughs> they're
0: all starting podcasts about fintech. <laughs> exactly
1: oh rex well thank you for joining me uh super fun conversation uh i'm excited that you know we get to continue to look at things together and and work on things together and i have no doubt There will be many more to come, uh, and I know my audience will love this conversation. So thanks again for joining. You bet. Thanks for having me, Kerr. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Operate Podcast. If you like this conversation, as a favor to me, you can rate us, review us, or subscribe, or tell your friends. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Operate Podcast. Until next week, get out there and operate.